Hey, welcome to RushCast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're happy to have you here. We're in the middle of our 2016 album series, No Album Left Behind, and today we're talking about Getty Lee's solo album, My Favorite Headache, which has become one of my favorite records to listen to in the last maybe two years. It's it's one of the most enjoyable collections of music for me, and partially, I imagine that's because uh, I haven't beaten them to death yet. Like I can't, I don't really enjoy Grace Under Pressure. Like Grace Under Pressure, just to pull one album out of the hat, might be a is probably a better record. But I've listened to that a million times, like every other record. And my favorite headache, I've only got really two years of enjoying it because it did take me some time to get into it. But I want to shed some uh, some light on why this album uh, is so great. I don't think it's universally accepted as a as a you know as a good album. So I have uh, I have somebody on the show today that we're going to introduce in a few minutes that's going to help me back up uh, my argument for why this is a really, really nice album. First, uh, last week we talked about Tess for Echo, and a few people had very similar points on why the song Virtuality, which is hated among many fans... Uh, well, I, I guess I should just say it's a defense of virtuality, and I want to read an entire email that somebody sent me because this email s- kind of summed up what everybody, what these like three or four people, uh, what the points those people were trying to make. So here we go. Uh, this is from David Schmidt on virtuality. I love this song, but being a longtime lurker on all the Rush internet message boards, it might be the most hated Rush song ever. I think the most hated part of the most hated song are the lyrics, net boy, net girl. It might be the most wussy lyrics ever recorded by Rush. I agree, but it's actually a very catchy chorus. I love the strumming acoustic guitar over the electric power chords, too. I'm not convinced the lyrics of the song are dated, either. Most of us still use cable or DSL modems. The concept of saving the universe in a grain of sand was... Uh, not dated, uh, technology is still moving in that direction given the incredible advances with digital storage slash memory. It's also a great double meaning. A grain of sand is a tiny speck, and it's mind-boggling how much data you can now store in a tiny space. But sand is also made of silicon, the basis of all computer chips. Also, given the current advances in virtual reality, quote, holding the future in your virtual hand doesn't feel dated at all. And lastly, sending your heartbeat around the world is exactly, literally, what millions of people are now doing with the Apple Watch. In other words, screw the haters, but the best part of the song is Alex's riff. It kicks ass. It's also such a great example of his genius. It sounds like a simple, heavy riff, but if you just play it like the simple notes you think you hear, it sounds like ass. He does these very subtle slides and extra notes that are essential to making it sound cool. It's not as simple as it sounds, and that is Alex in a nutshell. So the a great email, David, and thanks for sending me that. The big thing I take away is, and, and the, the criticism that Virtuality always gets is the lyrics are dated. Well, in the last week, I've learned they're really not dated. Okay, like I think some of the terminology scares us because we don't really talk about modems anymore. But one of the people that brought up the same argument was my father, who was texting me while he listened to the last episode and said, hey, guess what? Like, we all still use modems. It's still 
that's we're still using the same exact technology and like david points out hey the apple watch is sent literally sending your heartbeat to anywhere in the world it's literal <laughs> you don't have to dig that deep so uh i think those are really good points and i'm always up to defend that tune because i never had an issue with the lyrics i don't know if it's because i was 13 years old listening to that track and really you know i, I maybe i was listening through a different lens but uh, that was always one of my favorites, so I'm happy to hear people shed some love for that. Anyway, today we're talking about a different album, Getty's solo album, and I want to invite Ron Reed back on the show. How's it going, Ron? Outstanding. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. You're coming back. You did, uh, I think this is your third episode, right? You did Moving Pictures? Absolutely. Yeah, Moving Pictures, and then previous to that, was one of those where anyone that had donated a little... Uh-huh. Um, we could be on an episode. So I had the pleasure of doing that prior. Uh, Ron's also responsible for the intros you've been hearing since the Moving Pictures episode, which started as um, each kind of like number one hit from the year that album was released. And we did that for like maybe 10 episodes and then we switched, or not maybe, maybe six episodes or something. And then we switched over to a sort of medley of each song that you've been hearing for weeks now. You know what I'm talking about. And Ron was the one who, who came up with those ideas and uh, approached me about it. So, uh, Ron, I think they're, they're really well done and people have, uh, have responded well to those. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. And um, they're fun to do. I, it, it, I've, I really am a rookie at it. And so I've gotten a little better at it or, or it's gotten a little where I can do one more quickly. I guess, though, for some people... Maybe the 30-second skip feature is kind of handy. And in some cases, you have to press that three or four times to get through it. But mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the 30-second skip feature, if they want to skip it, they can. But it, I think it's a nice reminder of everything we're about to talk about, you know? Cool, cool. I enjoy doing them. So, listen, my favorite headache was a record that I was extremely disappointed with when I first heard it. I don't remember if I got it. I, I imagine I had every Rush record once I, I bought this one. Um, but I remember expecting Rush, and when I didn't get Rush, I was disappointed. I thought the opening track was amazing, and I thought literally the rest of the record was garbage. And uh, I'm ashamed of that because I think the opposite now. In fact, I probably listened to the opening track the least of the others. Maybe it's because I beat it to death or maybe that one's just, it's, I think it's easily digestible and it's, it's easy to kind of get sick of, but it's, you know, it has those Getty Lee rush baselines that I ex come, have come to expect. And maybe that's why it kind of jumped out at me at first. What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that for me, I, my appreciation of the record evolved as well. However, I always liked it, but when I first heard it, my criticism of it was, in my mind, a solo album has opportunities to bring a lot of other people in. For example, they could have had, you know, the city, although it'd be another bass player. Getty's such a fan of, and so influenced by Jack Bruce, for example. What if they had him come on? You know, just different things like that, different people coming together, even for just one song. My wish at the time when it first was released was I wish that it had been 
a collection of a lot of different people with Getty. In especially in preparing the last couple of months for this episode, I really came to appreciate the genuine collaboration on this record between Ben Mink and Getty Lee and how those two play so well together. Equally, it gave me a great opportunity to learn more about Ben and get deeper into his career and exactly who he, who he is as a musician. He's most known, well, to Rush fans for his contribution to losing it on Signals, which is amazing, especially once they reprised it during the R40 tour. That really solidified that song for the entire fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, he had a tremendous career with Katie Lang. And I did a bit of research on that and really came to appreciate the sort of Swiss army, Swiss army knife that Ben Mink is in relation to being a musician. You can really plug this guy into a million different things. He's just so versatile. And he's a genius when it comes to coloring the landscape of the background musically. It's just amazing. So, for example, if you look at just one song from Katie Lang's um, catalog, her most popular song, Constant Craving, that song has some real interesting depth musically. And Ben is pretty much the director in relation to what happens musically with Katie Lang. And so I really have an incredible appreciation for him now. Equally, wrapping it up, I um, heard quite a few interviews with Getty Lee sharing his appreciation of Ben and the collaboration that he had with Ben. And it just really made me appreciate that this isn't an opportunity to bring in everyone from all different corners. More or less, it's a collaboration between Ben and Getty and with two drummers, the majority of the drumming done by Matt Cameron, and then eventually on one song, Jeremy Taggart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you watch, there's like a small documentary on this album on YouTube. And uh, Yeah, exactly. It's excellent. Go ahead. Yeah, and, Get- and Getty kind of makes it sound like the reason this record happened was because they always... Ben and he and Ben always wanted to do something together. And once they started actually playing together, they said, Hey, this sounds great. Let's record, you know? Uh, so it sort of, it yes, seems like exactly. it sort of grew out of that, but you it know, did. it did. And that's a great documentary. I really like it. Now I did hear another interview where he speaks, and this is actually on Spotify of all places. A Getty Lee, my favorite headache interview that's on Spotify, oh, but no he talks in that interview about, that at one time it was on the brink, should we do an album or should we create Ben and Getty, their own production company? And at that time they were, they were contemplating doing production for other groups. Yeah, that's boring to me. <laughs> I, I, yeah. um, you know, Alex does his stuff with other groups. I have no interest. Like I'm interested in them yeah. as, uh, as artists, and not as yeah. uh, behind the scene guys. That doesn't right. mean if you are interested in that stuff, you know, 
good, you know. I, I sort of wish I was, I were interested in it, but I'm not. Uh, I'm interested in what comes yeah. out of their instruments, but uh, nonetheless. To contradict what you're saying or, or counterpoint what you're saying, it depends on how they would run it, I guess. I mean, obviously they didn't, so it's irrelevant. But if they did, to have Ben Mink in a production role, if he was to use some of his talents to to assist some of the music, that's a pretty huge producer. And Getty, to have his assistance, that's a strong hitter as well. So who knows what could come out of that? One thing's for sure. The collaboration between Ben and Getty certainly made for an album that, for me, is anything but a headache. <laughs> You know, you said he was. You said Ben Mink was versatile, and I think that's that's correct. Like in the Rush world, up until my favorite headache, we knew of Ben Mink as a violinist, and I think he shines on. While this this album has, you know, is littered with uh, strings and, and violins and and layered violin parts to create like these orchestral sounds, I think he shines as a guitarist on this record. That's what I'm most yeah, impressed absolutely. with. Is the guitar? Playing. I agree. However. There's not, although there are strong guitars, there's never what you would actually call a guitar solo. So that's one thing that sets it different than, because a lot of people could listen to this, and you could probably fool some Rush fans into thinking this is a Rush album. Yeah. Because it really does have Rush feel to it, but two key differences that are very apparent without digging way deep. Two key things are, number one, there's no genuine guitar solos anywhere. Number two, though the drumming is often very Neil-like, the right hand is a lot different. First, mm -hmm. um, the way Neil uses cymbals, the bell of the cymbal, the china cymbal, the way Neil plays cymbals and going back and forth between the, uh, the ride part of the cymbal and the bell and doing triplets on the bell and things like that. It, if it is there, it's not as prevalent in the mix as it is on a genuine Rush album. So, but, but beyond that, I'm impressed that often uh, Matt, in particular, does things that are extremely Neo-like. Yeah, uh, maybe you'll have specific examples once we get into the songs? Because I'm interested Absolutely. in that. Okay. Now, yeah. I would say that I'm thinking through the tracks. Grace to Grace, I think, has maybe the closest thing to a guitar solo, but it's very much in the spirit of like a Roll the Bones guitar solo where, or, or maybe like a Counterparts guitar solo where it's not as much of like, you know, the guitar isn't going off and doing its own thing for eight bars. It's sort of just the upper voice the outlining what the rest of the band is doing. On Grace to Grace exactly. specifically, you know, which is yep. an Alex Lifeson trait in a way. Um, so let's go. Let's get into it here. The uh, the title track, like I said, opens up with exactly what I wanted from the record. Uh, and weirdly, like you don't really get that again for the rest of the album. You get tastes of it. Like there are times where Getty opens up as a bass player and plays a bit thrashier. But this is about as metal as it gets. Definitely, absolutely. Now, a couple things. Of all the tracks, this is the only one that has a couple of elements, and they are brief, that, I, that I'm not a big fan of. However, I do like the track. But, and these elements are so 
just ridiculous. There's a couple drumming things at the very beginning that I don't like. I don't like the tone of the drums at the beginning of the record. It sounds to me like somebody closing the trunk on a on a car. You know, just mm. doof, doof, you know, nothing, no, no resonance there. And that's very nitpicky. And there's another fill that I don't know why the fill is that way. It's almost, I don't know if it's supposed to support what's happening lyrically in the song or what. I just can't figure it out. But it's it's this very strange sort of bitchum, bitchum. And it, the rest of the fills are excellent. But that one really irritates me. Yeah, beyond I know that, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I feel that. Yeah, that fill is just really... Uh, but beyond that, there are other fills in the in the exact same song that are fantastic. So that's really sort of a yin and yang odd sort of thing that happens. Now, beyond that, though, one thing about this song in particular, it almost kind of has sort of a, to the Batmobile, Robin, let's go. You know, and you can hear them sort of running to the Batmobile, and then when the guitar comes in screeching, it's almost like you can see the cave door open and it takes off. It kind of has that sort of vibe. Yeah, it does paint a picture. That's funny you mentioned that, because I always thought this had a slow motion sort of feel to it. Once the oh, chorus real, yeah. kicks in, uh, it if it's like a half, it's you know, to break it down, it's halftime in the drums, but it, it just it feels like everything is suddenly in slow motion in that moment. Right. Now, is this part that I find that the piano playing the keyboard, which in this case is piano, is different than I've ever heard Getty play piano before or keyboard before. It's a lot more, though there's just a rhythm to it, it seems more elaborate. And, you know, as a drummer, how much can I know, right? But it seems like more elaborate p- piano on this than I'm used to. Do we know for sure that it's Getty playing piano? Well, it claims to be in the liner notes, and no one else is attributed right. to piano. However, both Ben and Getty are credited with programming, and certainly a synthesizer could be programmed, mm-hmm. and a synthesizer can sound like a grand piano. So who knows, right? Right, yeah, and we'll probably never know because the, you know these two solo albums are, are so buried, and there isn't much information yeah. on them. But that's a that's yeah, a great point. Before we, before, yeah, before we move forward, there is one thing I want to say about this record, and it it happens right off of right from the first song. One thing about this record is that there's sort of a big word alert that happens in several songs, and this particular song's big word is nihilistic. Mm-hmm. How often have you heard? In any song on the face of the planet, the word nihilistic. Never. Exactly. (laughs) So the big word alert, nihilistic, pops up in this. And as we go through, I'll share with you the the big words, so to speak, from each of these songs. Not every one of them, but the majority have strange words. But that jars my memory to another very important point. I love the lyrics. And... It's extremely interesting to hear how Neil-like the lyrics are from song to song to song. I think Getty and Ben collaborated and did a really tremendous, really great job writing the lyrics for this record. And I'm very surprised and actually disheartened that subsequent to this record, that Getty didn't do more writing, that (laughs) a couple tracks per record after this, Getty 
didn't either collaborate with Neil and get a writing credit or have a couple songs where, you know, this one's written by Lee lyrically. You know, I think I think this album's very important and it's important for us to sort of analyze it like this and be conscious of this record. And this is this goes especially for anyone who hasn't heard it. And I'm sure if you haven't heard it, you're probably not even listening right now, but I think this is the future. I think this is the this is the only taste we have of of what we're going to get from Rush in the future. I think another solo album from Getty is coming and I think it's coming sooner than we think. That's just my opinion. So I, I think we do well, need like to really that. read into this. Um, I, yeah, I'm sure that that will, will cause some ire and some, some you know, aggravation out there. But for me personally, if suddenly I saw on the net that at, you know, Taft Theater here in Cincinnati, Getty Lee was doing a, you know, solo tour of theaters, I'd want front row. Yeah. So the the present tense, I think, is the uh, the beginning of the, what the rest of the album is going to sound like. the yeah. The present tense is a better representation of the rest of the album, in my opinion. Not to say it's a better song, but it's a very different song. And I think right off the bat, we get an example of uh, how unique and eccentric the guitar is. Maybe not eccentric, but how how uh, well put together the guitar parts are going to be on the album. It's a right off the bat, we get a nice idea. Uh, it all it also sort of highlights Getty's new uh, new approach to his bass lines, and we'll get into that more and more as we go through it as well. But especially in like the second verse, there's some really really beautiful bass parts happening that we're not really used to. I agree, and I think lyrically that the rhythm of the lyrics. I think that this is one time, and it just happened over the years, many times, but it really, this song more than any other on the album is one where Getty wrote the lyrics in such a way that they have a very, very musical feel. For example, when he when he goes into the part where it's, um, and I in no way can emulate Getty, but it's uh, something you said, it made me step outside the moment, like that, the whole thing. The, the lyrics are extremely musical, not only in their delivery, but in their cadence. So I really, really love the song for this. And another point of this record, more than many, many Rush albums, this record is one that I'll find myself badly singing along with. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the, and, they're melodic is what, is what you're saying. They're, they're yeah. good melodies. Absolutely. And the songs stick in my head. And I find myself, especially after prepping for this, you know, I'll be singing these songs in my head through the day. Yeah. This song's bridge, I think, um, paints a picture really nicely. It's sort of like a, these. a lot of the bridges on this record are more soundscape-y. Like, they, they really, they just kind of put you in a, in a, you know, a place, a nice place. They don't, they don't like... They're not screaming at you. They're not screaming guitar solos. They're not breakdowns. They're just like these open, spacious soundscapes. And I think we hear that I on agree. this tune as well. I think that part of that is the ambience that Ben brings to it. Yeah. I mean, Ben is Ben is a real master of ambiance in, in the songs. I mean, just little, little trinkets, little elements that sort of dance underneath. And often dance underneath out of time. 
in relation to everything else, but it all fits. It's, there's some sort of ma- uh, mathematical ingenious happening there with Ben. Yeah, like I said, I, I appreciate I appreciate him as a guitarist even more than a violinist now because, of, and he's not a flashy guitarist. Yeah, you know, and that's um, and I think you could argue he's probably a flashy violinist at least if we look at losing it, or he can be. Not to say he's always flashy. Um, Absolutely. So we move I on to he's he's responsible for some of the just the the sort of noise that happens underneath everything. That has a musical. Yeah, he uses it. Before we move forward, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, they're they're just big word of art for present time. Okay, make the point. They're just more like, um, like he's using his guitar as a sound effect, more or less, as as they would use synthesizers at times. Yes, yes, I agree. So my big word alert for present tense. I was trying desperately to crowbar that point in. Um, Big word alert. Imbued (laughs) is the word. That I've never heard prior. I've heard it b- very rarely. <laughs> yeah, so there it is. Do you have one for every track, Ron? I don't have one. There's nothing nothing big word for window to the world. Okay. We, um, do, have, we do have words to look forward, such as malevolence. Uh-huh. Yep. Celestial, supernatural, <laughs> apathy, apolitical, <laughs> absolution. Oh man, those are all coming. Remind me which tracks they're in once we get to sure, them. Sure, sure. Um, Window to the World is maybe my favorite on the entire record right now. And again, that it's changed a lot in the last two years since I don't even know. I know one of the big moments for me was driving up to my last school, which I had to drive all the way through the Adirondack Mountains in the fall. And I remember one of those trips, I put this record on and really kind of connected to it with like this incredible nature around me. Uh, that might have been the moment where I kind of, I really started to appreciate it. Uh, Window to the World is, again, a soundscape. And it, it's with the guitar lead part, uh, which I won't sing to you, but it's, uh, the, the lead guitar part sings a very different part than the rest of the group. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I love this track. Yeah, my biggest appreciation of it is the the metronome in the clock. They have a, as a background element a clock that serves oh, yeah. as a metronome to the song. To the song, and the clock is running in true time to what a clock on your you know on your mantle would run. So, in in effect, the song is actually set to that rhythm and so i wonder as i listen to it was this song written with a clock in the background and they just decided let's let's work around that that's funny so you're you're saying that this song this song song is exactly you know the quarter note equals 60 beats per minute correct wow that's interesting yeah so it's at the beginning of the track the guitar comes in and then the bass enters, but at the same time you hear this click, 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 right? And that's the clock right. you're talking about? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. That's a really nice... It's, it's stuff like that that, you know, makes it fun for us to talk about. Um, Absolutely. And it's funny because there's not a lot happening in this song. Like the, I think you could argue the chorus is pretty pretty lame. You know? <laughs> Give yeah, me that I window, like too. I'm just sing along with, you know? 
Yeah, I just th- I think it's a good example of like, sometimes you don't need Neil Peart lyrics and the depth right. that they have, or even some of Getty's lyrics, like you're pointing out. Sometimes you don't need anything but one line to make a really nice hook. Right. I agree. I like it. Uh, Runaway Train is a little bit more driving. And we get, again, uh, we're starting to, or I skipped one. Whoops. Uh, let's go to okay. Working at Perfect instead with Misspelled Perfect. So much for perfect, right? Yeah, Just right. One. <laughs> what do you think about this track? Well, I'm reading my notes really quickly to help me out, because you've done a great job of letting me cheat. <laughs> you launching in and allows me to look at my notes. Oh, no, hey, listen, um, I'll go. I think this is an, ex- no, no, this is good, an exercise good. in uh, um, Ben's violin sort of like taking the spotlight. In the in well, the in the choruses, written. it's this choppy right, sort of aggressive violin part. Yeah, I've got great example of Ben Mink's layers. Yes, and I very much appreciate the. Um, I remember exactly what the, I was trying to read my note. Like, what did I mean by that? And I remember exactly what I wanted to say, and that is, I love that little gnat in the background that's going na 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 na. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yep, totally. Yeah, yeah, I totally dig that sort of sort of electronic thing that raises its head throughout the record at different points. And on this one, that's one of the things I appreciate most about this particular song. It stands out is, mostly at the end of the track. Right, absolutely. Where that's like the only thing left fading out, I think. Uh, but again, absolutely. like take the bridge of this song. It's more a soundscape it's more just like let's create a a really nice texture instead of a guitar solo um and what what's featured in that bridge what's featured is getty doing these um you know these vocals with no lyrics just kind of moaning and what does that foreshadow everything on vapor trails you know again like we saw on test for echo a little bit we're starting to hear more of this uh experiment with Instead of using a synthesizer to play these parts, what if I just sang them? So now we can move on to Runaway Train, right? Absolutely. Big word alert. This is a song with malevolence and apathy. And this is a song, I really, I really love it. Though it is um, guilty, but I like it for this. It's guilty of being like, like, I'm your motivational speaker. You know, sort of a real motivational sort of get up and get things done and focus on your goals, you know, with the yeah. whole um, you've got to want it theme that runs through it. Well, again, I'm going to move right to the bridge. We hear, like, this the ultimate stripping down of textures and voices to where we only really have, in essence... Getty singing a part, a very like sort of intimate part, and just the bass behind it with the accompaniment. And like Getty's talked right. about how he thinks the bass should is meant to accompany the voice. So I think that's a, a beautiful example in that bridge of how the bass can complement the the lyrics and the vocals without stepping on it and without being too boring. No, it's terrific. I love the song. But and it does. And I let me add one one thing too. It's really interesting that a song that is real, like 
you've got to want uh, real motivational, you know, real. And a few songs from now, we'll be talking about slipping, which is quite the opposite feel in terms of if you had a lot of bad stuff happen to you, don't put on slipping today. <laughs> yeah, it might be a little depressing. Yeah, so get through get through the bad times and then listen to slipping. Uh the end of it's this track interesting how there's that, how there's that diversity. The end of this track is a cool moment where if you listen to the very end, the last thing you hear is this kind of like choppy in and out guitar sound and it it's very uh unpredictable and kind of flip-floppy in a way and then it kind of falls it stumbles into this major chord at the end of the track it's like it's it's sort of like a tremolo guitar sound and it's very agitated like the rest of the song and then it just kind of stumbles into this beautiful major chord as if to be like oh uh, yeah oh yeah here's what i was here's what i meant to do as as like the the part not necessarily what that that's what ben was thinking but that's what he was doing with the guitar part you're right you know and that sort of playing where it's sort of out of time but yet fits is, is really sort of a signature of Ben's. Even going back to what we were talking about, or I was talking about with Katie Lang's constant craving, halfway through the song, uh, like a vibraphone player comes in, mm-hmm. who, in my mind, I like to pretend it, like the vibraphone player is drunk because the playing... Though it fits beautifully and it's it's really great playing, it if you think to yourself, "Wow, this vibraphone player must have had a liquid lunch," you'll totally have that image in your head because the playing is so out of time. Yet <laughs> mathematically, it all fits yep. to you know in in that case a smash hit. That's funny. Um, the Angel Share is a song. This is my first. Um, I forget what I used to say. This first song that I would skip when I listened to the album, when I started listening to the album as a whole and enjoying it as a whole, I, I, I couldn't do it. It was, too, it was too slow for me and I didn't want the slow stuff. Uh, now I look at it as uh, a song, maybe like a weaker song on the album that has some really beautiful moments in it. Obviously, it's showcasing acoustic guitar front and center at the beginning. Uh, it's a little cheesy in like a Taishan sort of way for me, lyrically. But the big moment is at the very end of the track where the, the band stops and holds a big note and you hear in the distance, if we are only members of the human race, right. there's this big, fat uh, drum solo leading into like this oh, yeah. a very counterparts-esque soaring guitar part. That, that's like an Alex Lifeson thing from the 90s, the soaring sound up high. Um, I think that's where Ben, this is a, that's a big moment for Ben, for him to shine. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Though it's not a, what you would think of as a guitar solo where you're way up on the neck and, and blazing notes, you know, but you're, it paints, um, an atmosphere in a really great way with him in the spotlight. I totally agree. And I, now, I this word, this song takes the cake for big word alert. Uh huh. It contains celestial, a made-up, I don't know if this is a real word, supranatural. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a made-up, if that's a real word, supranatural. Right. Clandestine, 
which clandestine is not that big of a word, but I just crowbarred it in there. And finally, seraphim. Yeah, a lot of those I'm not exposed to, so I'll count them all as big words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing how many big words are on this record. And I'll but, give uh, the drummer credit. Like, I think that's one of the best guitar or uh, the best drum fills on the record. I agree. I agree. I think he did a great job on this whole record. Um, my personal favorite is the final track, "Grace to Grace." I think the, um, and we'll get to that, of course. But I think that the tempo of that record lends itself to great drumming, and he took full advantage of that, and I have a great appreciation for that. Sure. All right, we're moving on, and and I think the end of The Angel's Share ends on, well, in the classical world, we would call it a half cadence, meaning it doesn't quite go back to home. It's sort of the thing that leads to home is what we end on, and uh, that's a nice device to use, especially when the next track in the album order is in the same key, um, it sort of makes for this beautiful inter intersong transition between the two of them. Cool. Oh, uh, and we so we get this like beautiful Alex Lifeson esque uh, guitar arpeggio for moving to Bohemia. Right. I've not heard it that way, but I will listen going forward mm-hmm. and and marry those two together to hear it that way. That's very interesting. To me, moving moving to Bohemia has the most humorous lyrics. Though they're not in-your-face humorous, but I love the fact that um, Getty, early on in the song, gives sort of a sales pitch to this whole idea of moving to to Bohemia. The, The first piece of the sales pitch is, you don't have to cut the lawn. So I like that. That's good. Yeah, it is sort of it this might be the most Getty Lee ish, you know, track on this record where it has that sense of humor. I agree. Totally. And there's one lyric that I always misheard. And it's really it's I it's really to me it's very funny that I always misheard it because the the lyric where he says moving to Bohemia, I always heard where the literatures are seen. As if once you get there, there's all of these books and documents and such that you can now finally see. In researching this, I realized that all these years, I've had it wrong, it's where the literature's obscene. Right, right, right. <laughs> Makes a little more sense. That, yeah, in my mind, well, no, in my mind, I had it pictured almost like um, Early Rush, where Xanadu, you know, it paints this image of a mystical place. That's mm-hmm. how I had Bohemia pictured in my, it's really nuts, in my brain, it's crazy. But in my mind, there was some room with uh, just filled with literatures. And once you get there, you get to enjoy all of these, it was ridiculous. I'd much rather enjoy the obscene literature. Uh, the highlights on this track for me musically are, like the four measures of a little bit of like a guitar feature, but before the chorus, um, or I guess it's after the chorus. Taking you along, say goodbye to suburbia. You don't have to cut the lawn, and then we get this guitar right. thing for like four measures, and then the halftime sort of backbeat coming after that. 
those are cool moments. But also, I think the ending is done really well, where we the violin comes in. I think it's several violins tracked. Da 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 two three four one two ba da ba da ba ba ba. Like that's a I think that's a really yeah. cool lick. Yeah. For and the whole band comes in with them uh, and ends at the same time. And I think there's also like a sort of like a clock tick in this one. It might not be a clock because after that last mm-hmm. note is held, you hear a click, 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 click. Right. I'd be interested to know what that is, which is something I'll probably never know. Um, so when I, I heard this record back when I only liked the first album or the first song, I had listened to the record down. I just didn't like it. But, and I never listened to it again for years. Then I'd be sitting down with my bass, and I'd be I'd play this this lick and this riff that I thought I wrote, and I'm like, man, I'm so good at this. This this riff is so cool, and I would like try to rehearse it with whatever guys I was playing with in like a band or something. I'm like, let's write a song around this riff. And in the back of my head, I was like, is this a Rush riff? I didn't really know the material well enough yet, like the Rush catalog, to say for sure if it were. So I would like listen to the whole catalog and try to find that riff, and I couldn't find it. I'm like, yeah, I must have written it. Uh, and then when I started listening to My Favorite Headache all the way through, I realized this was the home on the strange riff, note for note, and I actually didn't write it. So needless to say, I really enjoy the riff on the home on the strange from the right from the start. It's yeah, sort of yeah. like a pull-off, hammer-on riff. Well, and to me... Home on the Strange has a similar thing going on to Leave That Thing Alone. I feel like there's some connection there. In what way? I feel like um, that right from the beginning, where it goes, I'm not doing it very well, but that riff feels similar to what happens musically elements of leave that thing alone. I feel like that you could push those two songs together in some way and create oh, yeah. thing that, that has a similar feel. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing for sure. They're both in the same key. They both start on a hard open A. And that so your ears, yeah. you know, your ear caught that whether you knew it or not. And you're right, yeah. sort of like the the seventh one, two, three, four, five whatever the the weird meter part is in leave that thing alone that sort of reminds me of that as well i think the right. aside from the riff like the how funky the groove is after that he sleeps with oh, a chainsaw and all that. that like that is some really uh funky playing in the bass and drums and obviously the guitar's doing well, all that thing, like yeah yeah i'm with you one thing about this song is that this is the, this is the one song that has Jeremy Taggart on drums from Our Lady Peace. And back to the documentary you mentioned earlier, um, Getty says in the documentary that they only had three weeks' time with Matt. And so, and and with that said, I'm very impressed with. You can tell that Matt really knows these songs by the way he's playing, especially during some of the uh, transitions, which are a little longer than, than what a typical transition would be in such in certain songs. He does a great job of filling those. And so I'm impressed with, if you've got three weeks, 
he really did a great job of learning the material. Now, back to Jeremy Taggart. Um, Getty says in the documentary that the two of them just really jammed on this one, that they really wanted a song where it wasn't all about layering and putting in the kitchen sink, so to speak, musically, but it was more of a live feel jam. So that's literally Getty and Jeremy literally played together um, and got that track down pretty quickly and then added elements to it. So it really is kind of a jam. Yeah, you're right. I, I had forgotten about this, and I always said if I'm if I were going to talk about this album at length, I would mention it. Uh, there are so many moments where they're not like they're not weird time signatures in a rush sense. Like if Rush is going to play in a weird time signature, it's going to be oh the next eight bars are in five, or the next you know we're going to we'll alternate between seven and eight, seven and eight, seven and eight. In, in on this record, it's more like hey for this one measure, just subtract one beat. You know what I mean? Right. And the next time we do that measure, subtract two beats. You know, like there's right. it's there there's no continuity. Uh, it's extremely unpredictable. So I've always thought like these poor drummers must be like, what is this guy doing? Like this is so yeah. difficult yeah. to you know to sort of execute. Not to say they yeah, didn't like it, but that's definitely happening knowing, on the record. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Just knowing where that is and what's coming and being prepared for it, and then. Um, figuring out what will fit best in that spot is where I'm really impressed with in such a short time window how the playing sounds and feels like that they've been playing these songs for years. So it's really, really impressive in that way. So we're moving on to a song that features the piano. And yeah. um, I always found it interesting that it, these two tracks were paired together, slipping and still, because they're very similar to me, and I, it feels weird that they're kind of grouped together in this. Uh, the 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 slots that I've I've argued are sort of you know it's predictable that these two tracks lay where they are, which is just before the last song. Um, right. You know, it, again, I, I call it like the wish them well slot, and uh, slipping. There is probably one of my least favorite on the record, but it, it does have a nice, you know, in the right mood, it is a nice track. Uh, my favorite part is at the end of the song, there's like one measure of almost silence where they're just holding a note or holding a chord out, letting it ring. Mm -hmm. And then the whole band jumps back in at the same point. And at that point, the feature instrument is voice with no words. It's Getty like moaning again. And we hear this vocal part that's highly layered and harmonized. And that's like the main part of the song at that point. And that it feels like the climax of the song to me. Right. What yeah, were you going to say earlier about Slipping? Yeah, this song, Slipping, is one where I do like the song very much. And I have a great appreciation for Getty, for Getty's including it. If you've just received divorce papers skip the song. If you've just been handed a pink slip by your employer, skip this song. I'm telling you, this song, if you're having a bad day, don't listen to this song on top of it. It will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. <laughs> That's a good point. It's depressing to think about, but... <laughs> yeah, it's very melancholy. Yeah. In my opinion, the way I hear it, it's a very melancholy song. So, if you're having a great day, go ahead and listen to it. Sure. Because... 
Grace to Grace is right around the corner. <laughs> That's gonna if if this song puts you in even the slightest bit of funk, Grace to Grace is gonna pull you out and send you on for a great day. Now, still is like I guess I I'd call it a sister song, but it's a little bit more of a standard ballad to me. You know, like the stereotypical bass slide in to start it off. Uh, it's nice, even time signatures. Uh, and I think it, it's a better, I think just songwriting wise, it's a better track. Well, I love Getty's voice. Yeah. And the, um, and the melody especially unique. is, is beautifully written. Yeah. Yeah. Un- a unique way for Getty to sing on this one. I really like that. Um, also, this is one track that. Um, well, actually, no, I'm wrong. I'm thinking about Grace Grace. Let me double back then, because I want to talk about a track where the drumming is extremely neo-like at one particular element. I just remembered that is on Grace to Grace. But, um, so, I love Getty's voice on this one. Um, the big word on this one, which is the final big word of the, of the record, is absolution. The, uh, this one does, though, have a tone of perseverance. In other words, sort of a theme of perseverance and almost has an edge of motivation. In other words, we're halfway up the hill, which is sort of a glass half full sort of looking, a way of looking at struggle as opposed to a more negative viewpoint. So personally, I find still to be a song of um, perseverance and and looking at the possibilities. So really, I, I find that still can be kind of a motivational song. So you're, you sort of see these last three as like a, um, a trio or um, a trilogy. Sort of. Yeah, so know, we I, go from slipping really to... That, but now that you mention it. Yeah, absolutely. that's what it sounds like. Slipping is like as low as it gets. Still is halfway up the hill. And then we get to grace to grace. Right, right. Well, and one last thing for me about still is... And you'll you'll be way better at describing this than me, although I'm bringing it up. The bass playing to me at one point, sound, it's kind of like he's playing the bass as as you would play an acoustic guitar, you got or it. as you would play like a piano. Line. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the biggest. Um, th- I mean, we haven't really talked about this. Is that especially in that YouTube interview? He says, you know, I, what would happen? We know we're not going to tour none of these songs will ever be performed live let's just layer the hell out of it if, if we want to right and they did right so th- this has this has got to be one of the only one of the only albums rock albums that has multi-tracked bass parts like and not just overdubbing the same bass line uh right so you'll hear moments where like the bass is doing stuff up the neck up high like melodically while there's a bass line underneath it and um on this song specifically, I've learned this part because it, it fits, it feels oh, really cool. nice on the bass. Uh, but he is doing cool. it's exactly what you said—a classical, classical guitar right hand, where the thumb plucks Got down it. and then the other three fingers are there to pluck up. Um, and it's right. a, it's a guitar part or a piano part, like you said, that he's performing on the bass. Yeah. Again, foreshadowing Vapor Trails, where Alex is so uh, said so often that Getty played more chords. On vapor trails, right. and that's what he's doing. He's arpeggiating chords. Uh, so really, that's a good a good point that I had almost forgotten to mention. Uh, so cool. sort of expanding his vocab on the bass. Uh, I I dig the end of this track. 
uh, those three notes, da, 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 or whatever. And for me, that song could be, the song could be over there and I'd be happy. But then the guitar keeps going with those arpeggios for that one final chord. And I'm cool with that. I'm cool with either way. Obviously, it only happens one way, but. And it leads into what might be my favorite track as well. It's up there with Windows of the World right now for me. Uh, Grace to Grace. Yeah, today on this podcast, my favorite song is Grace to Grace. Now, Ask me in three weeks, it'll be a different song. Yeah, now hold but on a minute. You, it's Grace to Grace. Yeah. You wanted to, yeah, I love the energy. You wanted to talk the about the drumming in this song. Place. You wanted yeah, to talk about the drumming, drumming is, but like when you said that, I thought, man, in the chorus, there's virtually no drumming. Yeah, but there's a section in there where I love the fills, I love the energy of it, and there's a section that's very Neil-like at the end where... Neil loves to do this thing where it's almost like he's celebrating that we, we've gotten through this. This is great. We, we did it. And what he'll do is on the snare and the crash cymbal, he'll start hitting those in unison every beat. So it's like, at the end, it's like, and just really celebrating the ending of the song with snare and cymbal together. And this song absolutely does that, which is a real signature Neil move. Now, are you talking about now, the sure last chorus? Do it. Pardon? Are you talking about the yeah, last sure chorus where now out. where he had been previously absent and now there's a drum part over it? Yes, okay. exactly. And he's really there, pre- you know, present with snare and cymbal, you know, crash cymbal, over and over, you know, still in time, but it could have played could have been played by anybody else. As just a an up tempo standard beat without as much crash cymbal. Neil really goes there sometimes to really raise the energy of the song or, or push it through to that that last bit to get to pull the band through the rest the rest of it, almost in celebration. I really feel like this is a Neil moment at this point of the of the whole record. Again, the end of this track, really cool, and I love that it ends with that bass slide up to one high note, and he just holds it and lets it fade out. Um, a lot of really oh, yeah. cool moments yeah. in this track. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of it is that it, it, it drives really hard, and then immediately the floor drops out for the choruses, and we get just vocals, and I think a little bit of hi-hat stuff. Um, and then... It, out of nowhere, in an Alex Lifeson fashion where the guitar isn't even playing, uh, immaculate vision of what could have been, right? And then the guitar comes in with right. this... Yeah, and I think exactly. that's such that a nice touch. Noise. Yep. Yeah. He's yeah. using it as an effect. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, really, really nice uh, a track. I'm trying to think. There was one other example I had that I wanted to point out. Uh, I don't know. I guess I guess it's gonna it'll be lost forever, but I do want to make it it's clear cool. that this is, in my opinion, one of the if not the strongest track on the record. And I'm glad we agree on that. <laughs> I do agree, absolutely. If you wanted to talk briefly about the um, the album's cover, yeah, I, I was, I was just thinking about that information about it. But the album's cover, I um, the information I have is that Getty sees that artwork as the character on the cover 
finds himself torn between two word, two worlds, kind of half in heaven and half in hell, and that lyrically he tried to capture that feel throughout the record of that sort of diversity, a yin and yang sort of thing. So it's kind of interesting yeah, in that relation. You know, that's cool, Personally, but... I'm a, what? Go ahead. I just think that the, the color scheme kind of irks me. Like the green yeah, you know, green and um, blue and it's I, just I was just going to say that personally I would like I would have preferred the album cover to be if you go through the album artwork, there's some pictures, I believe Andrew uh, McNaughton, I hope I'm not butchering that, but mm-hmm. he did some photography for the record. And there's one picture in particular of Getty that's been used a lot over the years where he kinda has a couple fingers to his head as if he has a headache. Yes. I, I wish that that was the cover of the record. Yeah. So literally, it, you have Getty on the record, and he's got, you know, like like as if he has a headache. I think that'd be a stronger album cover. One interesting thing about the CD is that up till then, and I hope I'm correct with this, I believe I am, all the CDs were jewel cases, plastic. Um, you know, just the, the classic CD with the little booklet inside with lyrics, et cetera. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, it came out as sort of an environmental-friendly sort of package that was kind of a turnoff. In other words, you kind of want something that's going to last forever in relation to, okay, this plastic is going to protect this booklet, etc. And the booklet now has the lyrics, etc., but on the contrast, I did read an interview where Getty appreciated the environmental angle of the packaging and that for him, he saw it as sort of, hey, this almost feels like an album cover. And so he kind of liked that retro feel where mm-hmm. it's literally, you know, cardboard sort of material like an album cover. So he kind of had that defense of it. But it was interesting that that was the first time they did that. I think they've done it subsequently, though, with different releases. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, in a way, it, that was another uh, example of foreshadowing because that's what most records, most CDs are released like that now. I don't think you, I don't think yeah. anyone out there has uh, Snakes and Arrows or Clockwork Angels with the classic like plastic case. I think right. they were only in that that sort of cardboard sleeve. I could be wrong about that, though. And well, I, and now it was the same way. Like when I got my favorite headache, I didn't like it. I was like, this just this is weird, you know. Just give me the thing that like closes and latches. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And now yeah. I, I now I prefer that now because they they've yeah. made them a bit sturdier and uh, that you know the the plastic. Like if you leave the CD in your car and it's flopping around, the plastic gets all worn out and it makes the the album look nasty. Whereas the cardboard doesn't really do that. Plus, you drop it, you're not going to shatter the plastic or anything or step on it, you know? And Getty said the same thing, that he didn't like how frequently the plastic cases were breaking, either either the insert or the hinge. Uh-huh. Now, yeah. hey, one of the things I want to say about Grace to Grace is, wasn't that written about the Holocaust? Now, I don't know that. I read somewhere that it was... It, that it was it was similar to Red Sector A in that it had something to do with his mother, I believe. Yeah. Huh, interesting. And I couldn't find it researching for this this show. 
but I had read that in the past or heard somebody mention it like that. Maybe it was somebody, uh, maybe it was a Rushcast listener. I don't remember. If it was, please reach out to me. That's interesting. I'll try to listen. I love to try to listen to songs from a, from a different perspective than I originally listened to them. So right. I will do that. Cool. On another note, um, I had an, an email written to me by Douglas Laidlow. Doug Laidlaw. Was, yeah, from the Presto and Counterparts mm-hmm. um, album, and well, from those podcasts. And he had the great fortune. This particular album was never toured. However, Getty did go on a several-city signing tour, mm-hmm. and uh, Doug had the good fortune of getting to go to that. So he shared some, some insight from that particular, I guess there were a couple hundred people there, and that you could have two items signed. And, you know, he had only a few seconds and such, but he said it was a real thrill to meet Getty and to be able to get, you know, the CD signed and such. So that would have been pretty pretty amazing. I ne- where I was living in, um, I'm not sure if I was in Indiana or Chicago at the time, but unfortunately for me, I didn't have the opportunity to even know that there was a CD signing tour happening. That would never happen these days with with as good as the internet is for keeping me aware of what's happening where, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, it would be really cool to go to a signing by any of the Rush members, whether it be a book, a CD, a, or, or anything. And sure. speaking of the internet, keeping me aware of what's happening currently, I just learned this morning that in... I believe it's June that the R40 kits are going to be on display in an event in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Sweetwater, which is sort of a an online music mm-hmm. store, Sweetwater Sound. Yep. They're having an event in Fort Wayne, and um, both R40 kits are going to be on display. As uh, there's a lot happening there, but I mean a lot more than just R40 kits. And Lauren Wheaton's going to be there. Oh, cool. But it's called the Sweetwater Gear Fest. Uh-huh. So I'm definitely going to that. That'll be a blast. Man, why doesn't I live in New York City, man? Why isn't why isn't stuff happening here? <laughs> hey, well, that's the shocker, isn't it? That I'm talking about something happening in Fort Wayne and you're like, Wow, why am I stuck in New York City? <laughs> I know. That doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, now man. here's something. Going back to this album, very briefly, I have only one more point to make, and that's this. I love the mix. I love I love the way it is sonically. And it's interesting to me that after something that's, to me, to my ear, it's perfect sonically. And then the next record come out is Vapor Trails. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. How did that happen? You know, and I understand you had a previous guest who explained it very well. That's the way records were mixed at that time. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing that that was just a couple of years later that everything was pushed to 11 and um, just really kind of, hey, fight for, if you want to be on this record, uh, you know, chord, uh, guitar, drum, whatever, you're all competing for first place, you know. And I do, I do love the, uh, the remix, though. It's one of the few albums I've ever heard remixed paper trails that um just really wow hey this 
somebody really did sit down and remix this, very often you'll hear the remastered or the remixed of whatever. It's like, I don't really hear any difference. Maybe they yeah. put some EQ on it or maybe they, maybe they put the entire CD through a processor and now they're delivering it as remixed. Mm-hmm. But the Vapor Trails remix is really, oh, yeah. really great. That's... And in fact, I didn't really hear how mm, sort of dated the sound was on Vapor Trails until I heard the remix. Then I'm like, holy smokes, wow, it really is a vast difference. So going back to my original point, Getty's My Favorite Headache has a beautiful sound. And then Vapor Trails is next, which is, you know, everything pushed to 11. I don't know. Yeah, and, and, and from in the bass world, like, I, I love the the bass tone Getty got, not necessarily on Vapor Trails, but the tour, like on Rio. The Rio through right. Snakes and Arrows, I thought, was his best bass tone. However, I don't think that bass tone would have fit on My Favorite Headache. And while it's close... So, something happened between like Tess for Echo, my favorite headache, and that perfect tone, and I'm not really sure what it what it is. Maybe he just hadn't quite dialed it in yet uh, to what I think is my you know his best. Um, but I don't think that super twangy in your face sound would have worked on something like Still, you know? Right. So in right. a way, I'm sort of grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Really. Just more the mix of the record, you know, and um, is what surprises me, how everything is mixed beautifully here. It allows even the most subtle element to be heard, where on the original Vapor Trails mix, subtle elements are blocked out by elements that are way in the forefront. Right. It's a great album, and I'm glad we got to talk about it for a solid hour because I think it deserves it. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I like having you on, Ron. You know that. And thanks again for the intros. I think they sound great. Cool. I um, on the on the weeks where they don't sound so great. Thank you for enduring them. <laughs> they always sound good, man. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad you like them. That's cool. They're fun to make. All right, guys. Uh, I want to hear from you on Twitter if you like my favorite headache because I don't think it gets talked about nearly enough. And I think Ron and I did uh, did our part. So uh, let's uh, let's start talking about it this week on Twitter, and send me emails as usual. Uh, thanks so much, Ron. My pleasure. If I could throw out my Twitter there. I've oh, please, please, please it, do that. Um, it's quite a, quite the appropriate Twitter handle. It's at more Ron Reed. So it's a with a circle M O R E R O N R E E D. More Ron Reed. That's it, more Ron Reed. <laughs> I like it. Cool, yeah, follow him, and I'll put that in the uh, in the tweet once the episode is up, man. Cool. All yeah. right. Okay, before we get out of here, uh, my dad texted me in the middle of that episode. He didn't even realize I was recording, but that's sometimes how it works out. And he says, uh, he says, there's also the metaphor and underlying theme of loneliness in virtuality. Uh, like being a, a castaway stranded on an island, like being alone in your room with your computer trying to get someone to message to respond to your message uh, in a bottle slash modem. He says modem, by the way, means modulate slash demodulate, which is what every computer still does to its data as it sends it out and retrieves it. 
modulate slash demodulate mo dem. Maybe it's demodulate. I don't know. I don't know all the lingo, but my dad does. All right. See you guys soon.